Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Dinevsky, and today I spoke with Iqbal Daliwa, the Global Executive Director of JPAL. JPAL's mission is to reduce poverty by ensuring that policy is informed by scientific evidence. It does this by conducting randomized control trials, as well as through policy outreach and training. Its research is led by over 600 professors and graduate students from around the world, who are all laser-focused on finding the best interventions to reduce poverty. JPAL's impact can be felt all over the developing world, and I think you will be inspired by just how much good JPAL is doing in so many areas. Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Dinevsky, and today I'm speaking with Iqbal Daliwal, the Global Executive Director of JPAL. Iqbal, thank you for coming on the podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to JPAL? Yeah, happy to. Uh, so, I, I was an economist by training. Uh, I went to um, the Delhi School of Economics for my master's. And then I was looking for, I always was very, very passionate about uh, the work that governments do. And for the longest times, the governments were the, the, the biggest, they still are the biggest actors, but the only actors in development. And uh, I really liked the intersection of development and economics. Uh, so decided to join the Indian Civil Service, which is the uh, Indian government's senior civil service. Uh, so I joined that and for many years I worked first in uh, implementing development programs in the field and then moved to the uh, chief minister's office, uh, uh, chief secretary's office to work on um, various issues in policy making. Came to the U.S. for my master's in public policy um, and then kind of stayed back, went to the dark side, as they would say, to the private sector. Uh, I worked in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in consulting for a while, really, really enjoyed that. I uh, had learned a lot, but I think that, you know, my true, I, I realized soon that my true calling was at the intersection of economics and public policy. Uh, and so I had, I subscribed myself to this uh, alumni jobs newsletter from uh, my public policy school at Princeton, which was then called Woodrow Wilson School. It's now called School of Public and International Affairs. And then I find this innocuous uh, uh, job description saying, the Abdullah Jamil Poverty Action Lab at MIT is looking for somebody to do cost-effectiveness analysis. So it was like a junior position to do cost-effectiveness analysis. Uh, knew almost nothing about cost-effectiveness analysis, but I had heard about Esther Duflor at that time. Uh, you know, we had read about her and Senator Mullenathan and others and as part of her class many years ago at Princeton. And so I said, oh, well, if this gives me a chance to see Esther, then why not? Uh, and then I came, interviewed, and uh, the rest, at least for me, is history. Great. And I know that JPAL is really a unique organization in a lot of ways. And so can you just tell us what it does and what it hopes to broadly accomplish? Yeah, so, so uh, JPAL, or the Poverty Action Lab, uh, uh, you know, is is driven by one single mission, which is to say that uh, how can we make sure that the fight against poverty uh, is driven by evidence and 
how can evidence be used to improve the impact of the development policy? And by development policy, I mean not just government programs, but also uh, funding that goes behind this. Uh, and the way JPAL does that is through something very particular, uh, very very specific called randomized controlled trials or randomized evaluations. Uh, now, there are many ways to you know try and tease out the impact of a particular program. There are like you know, lots of organizations will just do pre and post. Other organizations will um, do lots of qualitative interviews. Uh, you know, we believe that one rigorous way to do that is uh, is using randomized evaluations because they help you understand the causal effect of a program uh, in a very rigorous way. So that's what we do. Uh, and uh, that's kind of one pillar of what JPAL does, which is kind of the research pillar. But then the organization is structured to make sure that the research that is created, the knowledge that is created doesn't, doesn't just stay in academic or scientific journals, but reaches the policymakers, and then the policymakers have the tools to implement it. So really the entire um, cycle of things. And you already mentioned things like cost effectiveness. And so to me, the mission of j seems very aligned with effective altruism. And so I was wondering, do you believe it to have this sort of alignment? And if so, what does effective altruism mean to you? Yeah, uh, so so effective altruism, at least in my in my view, is is a brilliant program which is basically structured around trying to see uh, what good can folks do throughout their careers, rather than just you know go for one program or one project. Uh, and, and so it's you know like throughout the course of people's lifetimes, how can the max how can they maximize the impact of their giving, which is the philanthropic giving, but also the impact of their efforts. Uh, and how, And I think the way they think about it very clearly is that you can do it based on evidence. So rather than basing it on your instincts and saying, you know, this is what I want to do, or this is what I believe uh, works, just base it on evidence. Um, and I believe they, you know, like look for opportunities which are also scalable, opportunities which others may not be, uh, maybe have ignored, uh, but still where solutions are kind of obvious or easy to find, uh, at least easy to find using evidence or evidence exists. Um, so, so there is actually a fairly nice mapping of that to what J-Paul does. Um, so J-Paul believes very similarly, you know, Abhijit and Esther wrote this very famous book called Poor Economics, in which they said, how can we take decision-making, policy-making, the fight against poverty away from making decisions based on instincts and ideology and inertia, which is what they call the three I's, and basing it on evidence. So that's exactly uh, what J-Paul tries to do. Um, and, and, and so I think there is a very good connection. So hopefully, uh, a lot of the evidence that we are generating allows effective altruists to, to, to pick a field that they want to be in and then uh, find good investments. Definitely. And another aspect of JPAL that I'm really interested in is exactly what these trials look like. And so how does JPAL go about deciding which trials to support and what does this selection process look like? I, I think this is where the creativity and opportunity both kind of intersect or collide, uh, whichever way you want to think about it. Uh, so let me start with the um, creativity. So, you know, Jepal is a network. As a network, we have about 300 affiliated professors and other 300 professors who are invited researchers. So, you know, really we are a network of about 650, 700 uh, researchers who are doing very good field research on 
how to reduce poverty and how to maximize the impact of programs. So first and foremost, we have at least 600 of these people, many times they're graduate students, thinking creatively about what needs to be done. So it's kind of that's one angle. So I, I, I'm not going, going to uh, ask Pascaline Dupas at Stanford, you know, what do you want to do? Pascaline will herself say, you know, I'm really interested in finding how the COVID pandemic had a disproportionate impact on women dialysis patients versus male dialysis patients. And this is a real uh, example. Like I wouldn't have been able to sit in my office and kind of conjure that up. Pascaline did it for me and kind of that's one, did it for us and that's one part of it. The second part of it is that we have boots on the ground and a lot of our staff like me are folks who were policymakers in their previous lives and have deep connections with government. So we travel a lot and we hear from the policymakers what their priorities are. So for instance, when I uh, go to India many times, I will hear people talk about how can we um, how can we make sure that our social protection initiatives are strengthened? How can we make sure there are not leakages in public distribution or free ration programs? So then we bring it back to our research network and say, okay, what the evidence exists, who's interested? And then the final uh, third leg of this comes from the donors. I think uh, the foundations and donors also are very very keyed into the policy making side on one end, uh, and they're also very keyed into you know if, uh, events like effective altruism if events and other things, and so they put their money where their mouth is literally by creating within JPAL these funded initiatives. Uh, so, for instance, we have an initiative on governance, which tries to say how can you strengthen democracy in developing countries, how can you prevent leakages, and so there is a pot of money that is sitting at JPAL funded by folks like the. FCDO um, and folks like the Hewlett Foundation. And so then we call for proposals and each of these call for proposals is responded to by a combination of a researcher and a policymaker. So every JPAL project must have a researcher and also has to have an implementing agency. So that's kind of the third leg, incentivizing research through funding. So those three channels. Great. And I know you mentioned the extensive extensive network that JPAL has. And so I know that JPAL's affiliates frequently partner with another nonprofit called Innovations for Poverty Action, whose executive director I actually had on the podcast last year. And so can you discuss a little bit about what this partnership involves? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, Innovation and uh, Innovation and Poverty Action or IPA and JPAL uh, have been very closely knit since both their inceptions. IPA was created by Dean Carlan, and just around the same time, or maybe in fact, might have been even a little before JPAL. And JPAL was created by Abhiji Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and uh, and Zendel Mulenathan. Um, but they were like kind of key differences, which I think are very, have have been great at kind of complementing each other. So IPA was set up as an NGO, which means it's extremely nimble. They're able to take decisions, you know, like uh, kind of without worrying about, um, you know, what are the structural, uh, what is the ecosystem in which they are. JPAL was set up as an academic institution. So we are we are a center, our head office here is a center at MIT, but like our regional offices, whether it's each one is also based at a local university. So our Africa office is based at the University of Cape Town. Our India office is based at IFMR. Our Europe office is based at the Paris School of Economics. And so I think that lends ourselves to 
tap into students, tap into researchers, tap into university networks, tap into the knowledge generation and the policymakers who come through these institutions in a way which is slightly different from the from IPA, but at the same time, it of course, slows us down. I have to follow MIT rules and procedures too. Um, the second thing that we've tried to do is to complement the countries we are in. So, for instance, IPAs, IPAs in uh, Ghana and IPAs in Kenya and IPAs in Nigeria, whereas our office uh, is in South Africa and there is no IPA in South Africa, just the way there is no uh, JPAL in Ghana. Um, and uh, we we take a regional viewpoint, they take a, a, a local point. But suppose one of our affiliates wants to do research in Ghana, we would look at IPA to implement it. So I think lots of complementarities. We try not to duplicate things. We end up do duplicating a few things. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, you know, the other connection, we are literally uh, sister organizations. Uh, there is a Duflo, uh, Annie and Esther, who's, who, really hits, who sits on, on the board of both of them. Yeah, it's very nice. And I obviously want to talk about, you know, JPAL's affiliate professors have conducted so many randomized controlled trials designed to answer critical questions about poverty that it would be impossible to discuss all of them. But could you tell us about a few of the more impactful or at least significant, in your opinion, randomized controlled trials JPAL has conducted and also as well as some currently being done that you really think are you know, the future or really significant as well. Yeah. So uh, in terms of impactful, most cited, you know, let me, uh, let, 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 uh, rather than trying to pick winners, <laughs> I have, uh, uh, given that I have 600 uh, researchers in the network. That's right. <laughs> Let, let me just punt it to the Nobel Committee. Uh, so when the Nobel Prize Committee wrote up their citation for Abhijit, uh, Esther and Michael, uh, there were, I think, at least two that they cited. One was the teaching at the right level, which was a study led by, uh, you know, like uh, uh, by a number. There have been a number of PIs over the years who have been involved. The consistent Paired in this, uh, two people in this uh, whole stream has been Abhijit and Esther for sure. Um, and uh, and what that, uh, this, they, you know, they, they've worked on a number of studies with Pratham, which is one of the most vibrant and largest NGOs of India, to try and see how can you reduce the learning gap that children have within a classroom. So, you know, the, often there'll be well-performing students, but there's a bunch of kids in a class who are not well-performing. And I think a lot of the research found that, um, you know, if you can group students by their abilities rather than grade level and do it for math and for reading uh, and do it early, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's first grade, second grade, third grade, then you can uh, really have make an impact on learning outcomes. Uh, so, so that's been a really influential study and it's now being scaled up all over the world, including in Africa uh, through teaching at the right level, an organization we are closely associated with. Um, a sim you know, so that's on education. And then on the health, I think uh, there's incredible work done by Michael Kremer and other others uh, on deworming. Um, Michael worked on this in Kenya many, many years ago and, and basically found that um, if you want to improve learning outcomes, uh, making sure kids are dewormed and they can attend school and be healthy uh, is a really great way. And, the, and what's fun is that these impacts persist even after these kids leave school, even when you track them after 10, 15 years and they've gone into jobs, you can see 
perceive a difference. Uh, again, has been scaled up massively, including uh, you know all across Africa, and recently, you know, a few uh, a few years ago now, uh, to a countrywide scale up program in India, which has some of the largest number of kids in the world. So. The first part of your question, I would just pick those. Uh, in terms of what's ongoing, I think maybe I can identify two strands of research. Uh, the first one is on social protection and the second is climate. And then I can give you one example of each. Uh, so social protection, I think, you know, all of us who live during COVID times now have really understood even more clearly the, the importance of having a strong social safety net in the country. In the US, for instance, literally, you know, first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration announced a few hundred or thousand dollar relief for households. And literally Social Security Administration pressed a button and voila, you know, your bank account had a few hundred dollars more. Uh, and then you look, compare that to most low and middle income countries. They don't even know who their poor are, whether they, you know, where do they live? What's their name? You know, how poor are they? Far less know what bank account to push money mm -hmm. to. And so I think COVID ta taught us that you really need a very nimble and robust way to um, provide social security benefits. So I think there's this whole strand of research which is going about how do you strengthen the existing social safety nets? And most current social safety nets provide free food, uh, which is also called public distribution system. So there is a whole strand of research on reducing leakages within that. But then more interestingly, there is another strand of research on how can you use identi identity cards uh, to, to uh, so sorry, this one is to reduce, use identity cards to reduce leakages. And then the second strand is, you know, instead of doing uh, food transfers, can we give electronic vouchers, which people can use, for instance, in Indonesia to buy the food rather than, you know, you come to my shop and have to buy the food only from me. So that's the second strand of research. And then the third one is basically just evaluating cash. Like, can I just give you cash and is cash as good as uh, this? So I think social protection is really important with um, in, in, uh, one strand. And then the second, uh, which I think is going to be the defining area of research for our lifetimes and beyond is climate change. Um, I think for the longest time or for a very long time, people thought of climate change research as uh, at least in the social sciences, how can we prevent people from cutting trees? Uh, how can we reduce air pollution. Uh, I think all of that research is still very important, but there is a 2.0 angle of that, which is what is the intersectionality of climate change with health and with education. So for instance, a lot of the health systems in the world are geared for fighting communicable diseases or non-communicable diseases like obesity. But how many of them are geared to fighting heat strokes? And forget about poorer countries, I would argue that you know, Midwestern state, Midwest states in America are not geared to fighting, uh, um, you know, the health systems are not geared to heat strokes. And so, you know, that one on the education side, what happens if schools in sub-Saharan Africa are now closed for four months or three months in a year because it is so hot? So I think there's going to be a lot of research on um, how to reduce the impacts of climate change and how to avoid climate change as well. So really, really excited about that strand. Definitely. Sorry, really long answer, but uh, 
It was a loaded question, and I appreciate it. I'm really glad we discussed a lot of those things. And actually, another topic I was really interested in, I know you conducted research on this, was the intervention that J-PAL supported in India and involved determining whether a monitoring system that recorded employees' fingerprints at the beginning and end of each day could improve staff attendance and patient health in primary care centers. And so can you discuss this intervention and some of your findings? Yeah, happy to. So, so this was joint work that I did with uh, Professor Rima Hanna, who is at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, and we were invited by the government of Karnataka, which is the state most famously known for Bangalore. And if you've never even heard of Bangalore, most of the time when you make a call to your service center for repair, it probably the call gets routed to Bangalore, which is the Silicon Valley of India. Uh, so this was a few years ago when uh, you know, people, you know, the, the mobile phones were penetrating much more and people felt that you, there was, you know, you had this problem of primary health centers, especially in rural areas where oftentimes the doctors or the nurses were absent. And so the government had done these fingerprint machines in the government, in the government offices in Bangalore and other places and found it very successful in increasing attendance of government employees. So they said, okay, why don't we just try this in these rural primary health centers as well, where many times the health uh, staff don't show up and, and see if that leads to an increase in attendance. And they were actually first thinking of just scaling it up across the state completely because they thought, oh, this the theory of change is really solid and we have evidence of it, so why not? But uh, we had a very uh, enlightened person in the director of NHM, Mr. Selva Kumar, and he said, wait, 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 you know, this is going to be a very expensive program. Before we implement it, why don't we pilot it? you know, and see if it really works or not. And that's at the heart of what JPAL is all about, right? Before you start investing millions and millions of dollars in a new program, try, take a moment, pause and see if it works. And so we, we did this program, uh, the, the government did the program and we evaluated it. And we find these very interesting results, which is that as the program gets rolled out into the primary health centers, initially you see an increase in attendance. So, you know, the doctors and the nurses, they're like, wow, this program is being implemented. The government is very serious about our attendance and they start showing up. And then by the time, you know, we had uh, we, we ran this evaluation for about 18 months to, eight, to, to two years, Towards the by the time we wrapped up this evaluation, we find that not only have the uh, the gains from attendance completely evaporated, oh. but actually some the attendance for some of the subgroups like the doctors might even be in places worse than what it was before. And so, you know, we all put our heads down, did some qualitative surveys, and essentially, you know, we found something which on uh, which everybody should have predicted. But uh, the, it's exactly this: you don't predict it, and once you do the survey, everybody's like, "Oh, this is so intuitive. You should have thought about it." But most people don't think about it, which is uh, the government. Uh, was facing a situation where the number of doctors it needed in the hospitals was far more than the actual number of doctors joining the health system. So they actually had a shortage of doctors. And there's a very complicated way to take action against these doctors who were not showing up on time. So A, the government was hesitant to take action against doctors because it was already facing shortage. The last thing it wanted was doctors quitting the system. And number two, the whole system of taking action against them was so convoluted and complicated that it would take months for them to take action. So, so they stopped. They were not really taking any action against the people who were not showing up. So now you imagine if you or I are one of the healthcare workers and you are like, 
hmm, you know, for all these years, I was showing up for work for two days a week because I thought if I don't show up for two days a week, the government will take action against me. And now the government knows I'm not showing up for work and it's still not taking action against me. So maybe I was a little bit of a fool for showing up for even those two days of the week, right? So, so, so kind of people adjust to the little bit. And I think this gives you, this is a fairly robust example of how, and in fact, many people felt that, you know, government is not trusting me in implementing the system and so forth. And so I think uh, um, it was a great learning as to how technology is not necessarily a panacea for our problems. I think it's another really, I think that's what I would say as the key finding here. Oftentimes we get very taken up by a new technology and say, wow, this technology is going to solve all my problems. But there's so many human and implementation angles that we forget. And so hats off to the government. They had the money to scale this up. They had the will to scale it up. They had even announced that they're going to scale this up. Uh, And then when we presented these results, I still remember in that meeting, you know, the discussion shifted completely from how do we scale this up to how do we scale it down? And the government scaled it down. So really um, quite an exciting finding. Yeah, I think it's interesting how even if you don't get the expected results, you still get really valuable information. And so I am curious when you do get these results, whether they're supporting your initial hypothesis or something a little different, how do you turn them into action? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, the generation of evidence of these results is the first bit of it. Uh, in fact, you know, taking you back to that moment when Esther interviewed me, I think, uh, you know, there was this aha moment when she, you know, she and I and, uh, I, and, you know, we were discussing going back and forth about what this, why we are doing CEA. And, you know, I remember I, I asked Esther, I said, you know, we are thinking about cost-effectiveness analysis, but have you thought about a bigger policy group and what should be the role of the uh, of J-PAL in general in, in this. And, and, and I think that led to the creation of the policy group. There was a recognition, I think initially our understanding when J-PAL was created was, look, our job is to create very good evidence. And if we have very good evidence, or it will automatically turn into policy. Now, it's again, one of those naive things on, on hindsight. It's, uh, it, it feels so, it looks, feels so naive. Uh, but I think there is so much road between generation of evidence from to that evidence turning into action. Uh, so the first thing you need to do is you need to summarize uh, this evidence in easy to digest forms. You cannot expect somebody to read an academic publication. You can't expect policymakers and donors to be doing that. The second thing that people want is a synthesis of evidence, which basically means I do, I'm not just interested in knowing about one study done in one context, but how, to, how can I connect the dots between multiple studies done in different places, either similar or related trying to achieve the same outcome. So that synthesis of evidence piece is very important. Important, And I think you need an organization like j or at least some organization to do that because, uh, you know, researchers... It's not their job to be saying, not only am I going to do my research, but connect the dot to hundreds of other research. They do a little bit of that, but not in the comprehensive way that is required. Having created these tools, then you need to disseminate them. So you need to have a social media presence. You need to have a website. You need to have a search engine functionality within the website, which is easy to find. 
easy, you know, like simple stuff, but easily overlooked by organizations. And then the final thing is, uh, even if this evidence is available, even if it is easy to understand, you often need to work very closely with the implementation partner, whether it's a government in Indonesia or it is um, a small NGO in, in Kenya to to map that evidence to their own priorities, their own needs, and most importantly, their own local constraints and capacity. So, so I think all that helps complete the circle. And then the final thing I will say that we try to do within JPAL is to build the capacity of others to do it rather than needing JPAL. So we do a lot of executive courses. We have a very robust online course on how do you use evidence to inform policymaking. Uh, and that's geared both to policymakers and local researchers. Great. And so just a little bit of a different question, but I'm curious, do you have any specific personal experiences that you can discuss about the impact that JPAL has had either on a person or a community at large? Yeah, I think uh, the communities at large and the persons, I, I think I talked to you a little bit about, you know, like the deworming and the impact on mm. school children or even the attendance and the impact on doctors and patients. So so I think the, the fun part about every single one of JPAL's research project is that it required a field partner. It, there were local people who were who were so kind and giving their time into the survey. The scale-ups impacted that. So, so I think we, we have you know, on our website, a list of, you know, hundreds of millions of people who have been reached by the programs that JPAL has evaluated and found to be effective. I think the one group that is often overlooked is development practitioners who have been JPAL alumni over the years and who are now in all sorts of fun places. Uh, so I think over the last, uh, we are, we're going to celebrate our 20 years next year. Over the last 20 years, there's a community of thousands of very committed uh, students who came, worked with us, some went to get their PhDs, most did not, who are now at foundations, who are at um, governments, uh, who are in, at NGOs, and who are trying to, you know, infuse this desire of having evidence in the programming. And so I think that is a group that I'm particularly very proud of and very grateful for, because I think, um, uh, you know, you need to, very much like effective altruism, I think all organizations can benefit by having a little bit of a lens of evidence in the work they do. Yeah. And so in reference to the idea of all these different people contributing to JPAL and really making it the community is, I know sometimes it can be hard for an individual to feel they can make a difference on the global poverty level. And so do you have any advice for individuals who want to contribute to reducing poverty around the world? Yeah, and and I would begin by saying that all of us make a difference, you know, all of us who work in development make a difference and all of you want to never feel like, okay, I'm a single person and how can I make a difference? You know, I often give examples. I, I sit on the board of an organization called Noura Health, which is doing some fabulous work in the health sector. And the designer who designs the brochures and the 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 pamphlets which expectant mothers take back with it uh, to to them like you know like the design if it is not good and if it doesn't connect to the patient is not going to have an impact so this designer could be sitting in nairobi or they could be sitting in cambridge but they are having an impact and i just think we often need to remind ourselves that impact is not just of 
had only if you can touch and feel the beneficiary it's 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 the impact uh, of or based on uh, the reach you have and so of what i often tell folks at that stage is you know follow the calling of both your heart and your head and let me tell you what i mean by that i think the field you want to be in you should i think you should actually pick with your heart so you know do you do you care about issues around gender and women's reproductive rights then you should not be working for an ngo which is all about education right then you should be working for an ngo which is cares about gender work if you are somebody who cares about domestic policy in your neighborhood in chicago and in in san francisco then you should not be working in international domestic development there's so much work to be done in domestic policy so there you don't need to sit down and do some complicated cost effectiveness analysis and say you know one hour of my time is more useful in africa versus in 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 sacramento no if your calling is domestic policy go to sacramento don't go to nairobi so that's fun but having made that calling of your heart then use your head in that organization and say okay you know i'm sitting in sacramento and i'm sitting in nairobi what's the theory of change of my organization what's the theory of change of my work how am i making sure that i'm measuring the progress through mnd systems how am i feeding back using the evidence that is being generated around the world to improve the programming of my organization um and so i think those are the questions then you know and once you connect this uh, your head and your heart then i think there is no way you can kind of go wrong yeah i think it's interesting the idea of obviously you want to do what makes sense but also what you truly care about because i do believe you can probably accomplish a lot more in a field that maybe you don't think is the most effective on paper but is so important and it's something you actually can put your mind and your heart into and so i think that's amazing and you know in closing is there anything else that you'd like to add about jpal the work or anything we might not have covered or you'd like to reiterate Oh, fun. Uh, okay. Uh, so, um, so I think uh, let me tell you about something that is uh, on my mind right now, which is as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier. Next year will be JPAL's twentieth anniversary, uh, and so I think these anniversaries are both a cause, you know, a little bit an opportunity to celebrate, but more importantly, they're an opportunity to introspect about what has gone well and what could have gone better, and what did we do right and what did we do wrong. So I think the first ten years. of jpal i think we were very successful and the researchers in our network in you know like really established themselves and disrupted the way that people thought of development right uh, randomized evaluations the role of impact evaluations the role of quantitatively measuring our impact how can it even be measured i think you know it, it really was the first 10 years was like shaking people out of their comfort zones and establishing the field I think the second decade was about really taking this proof of concept from the first decade to a much larger scale whether it was by working with governments at scale whether it was uh, entering new sectors where people thought you couldn't do randomized evaluations whether it is governance and anti corruption I still remember people would tell me for 12 years ago how can you do an rct to measure uh, something like corruption and corruption is an illicit activity so you can't really use an rct and lo and behold you know the our brilliant researchers figured out ways to do that um issues on gender issues on climate issues on social protection uh 
you know, like a lot of the non-obvious sectors, you know, the first decade was a lot about education and health, the conventional sectors, the second de- sector decade was that. So I think the question now is, you know, what, what should be the focus on the third decade? Um, and I think while all the issues that we identified are still going to be important issues on social protection, climate in particular, misinformation, discrimination, I think those are all going to be areas where we we have a role to play. But I think another thing I really want us to think about is how do we internalize a culture of evidence-informed policy making in organizations and not just uh, not just uh, small NGOs but large governments and not just governments but also international development organizations how are how is this internalized and how does this become kind of a key part of the work so that's one and then the second thing i think is about uh, increasing the the diversity of the researcher pool even more. How can we make sure researchers are coming from low and middle income countries? How is the gender proportion correct? How is, you know, like all type of life experiences represented in those researchers? We've done a lot of work in the last two decades to increase the diversity, but this is always a um, a, a working progress. And I think the field is going to be so much more strengthened with this diversity. So that's what kind of I'm excited for for the next few years. Great. Well, thank you so much for, you know, speaking to me. I think we cover a lot of really interesting topics and I obviously appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun.